Welcome back to Media Voices, everybody. This is the latest in our series of deep dive episodes looking at the key media moments that have shaped the industry over the past 12 months. This time we're looking at emerging tech, so that's Web3, the metaverse, people can't see I'm doing that in air quotes, how that has intersected with publishers over the past 12 months. And we're bringing in a media expert for every single episode. And this week we're joined by Simon Owens. Simon, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So why don't you give everyone a sort of a brief intro to what you do? Yeah, so I'm a, I, I, as, as shorthand, I usually say I'm a media industry journalist. Uh, I run a Substack newsletter that's published one to two times a week that dives deep on topics on everything from the, the down from the creator economy all the way up to traditional media companies. So I analyze trends and uh, talk about things that are working and aren't working within the media industry in terms of how um, publishers and, and creators are finding audiences and uh, generating revenues with those audiences. And then I also host a podcast called The Business of Content, and that features all kind of like what you guys do, just long form um, interviews with media operators where we just really kind of walk through their business and, and figure out why they're successful and, and how they work. Well, Esther, why don't you tell everybody where they can find more insight like this if they want a sort of snapshot of the entire year across all these verticals and sectors? Yeah, so the topics we're discussing this season, they're all going to be featured in our annual Media Moments 2022 report. That is actually going to be released next week, November the 30th. <laughs> so you can pre-register to receive the report as soon as it goes live over at voices.media mm22. This season and the Media Moments 2022 report would not be possible without the support of our wonderful sponsors, Pool. Pool is the membership and subscription suite used by leading publishers around the world. You can find out more about them as well as lots of useful case studies and benchmarking tools at pool.tech. Now, that's P-O-O-O-L triple O tech and we'll link to them from our show notes at voices.media we are going to be talking about emerging tech and what that means for publishers and i have got the absolute joy of being joined on this call by three total cynics about <laughs> in the metaverse so what i'm going to do is i'm going to roll this dice and whoever <laughs> and whoever the number i have assigned to comes up they will be my partner for this sparring match about web3 so let's see that is Peter. Peter, you are now optimistic about Web3 for the next hour. Love it. Um, <laughs> so to begin with, Esther, when we're talking about emerging tech, what have been some of those, I suppose, the, the key things that we've spoken about over the over the past year? There hasn't been. <laughs> well. Okay. I know. I, I think it, if you compare this year to last year, it's been a year of two huge, con- like it's, it's been 24 months of two huge contrasts. Last year, there was an awful lot of excitement. You know, Facebook decided that it was going all in on the metaverse and Subsequently, there's a huge marketing hype about it. There was a lot of um, a lot of experimentation in the NFT space. You saw a lot of publishers going into things like NFTs. There were the Ravitars from Playboy. Um, you know, Forbes went and launched all, all their NFT um, characters. This year, it's just all come crashing down. And I think we've always sort of said there's going to be a you know it's going to be a sort of period where everybody gets really excited and then reality kicks. I didn't expect it to happen literally within 12 months. Um, and for me, when, when we've been looking back and discussing some of the really exciting things happening for publishers, it's all been the old media formats that have, have been the exciting things. It's been newsletters, it's been podcasts, it's been um, you know things like Substack and, and blogs and the way that people are sort of reformatting content on the internet. It's not. There's been nothing exciting we've discussed in terms of 
VR, AR, metaverse, anything like that, or even cryptocurrency. It's just, it's been a really disappointing year. Well, I, I think mean, I, disaster I capitalists are pretty exciting. <laughs> <laughs> I slightly disagree, but Simon, what have been some of the key moments? Esther there was talking about this sort of crypto winter. Yeah, I mean, it really kind of uh, started with the the rise of inflation, and then the the Federal Reserve stepping in and um, uh, raising interest rates to, in order to you know basically stop inflation. And the the theory always was, I think, that crypto was some kind of inflation hedge, but that immediately turned out to be uh, the case. And all of a sudden, you started you started seeing a cratering in uh, the pricing for mo- for many. Uh, of these cryptocurrencies, which then kind of pulled the entire—I I don't know what word to use—but basically, <laughs> all the all these crypto companies were shown to be just houses of cards that were stacked on, you know, fake products. And all of a sudden, we saw several things come crashing down. You know, some of the highlights were, um, you know, the Terra stablecoin completely collapsing. Um, we've seen several uh, Web3 and crypto exchanges collapse, most recently FTX, mm. um, and it's all just become crashing down. And it's it's dragged just about everything within the crypto world down with it, including things like NFTs, DAOs, and other kind of Web3 um, platforms. Okay, well, let's let's just get straight into it then, because obviously we have seen, as you mentioned, that FTX collapse this week has been heralded as the end of crypto. I don't think that's necessarily the case. But to what extent? Oh, Peter, shaking your head. You're feeling optimistic about it. No, I'm, I don't. <laughs> I'm not optimistic. I'm already. Well, I'm like, Peter, the dice say you have to be oh, optimistic. Oh, sorry. Yeah, I'm very optimistic. The fact that I'm $2,000 <laughs> in the hole on crypto <laughs> is neither here nor there. <laughs> uh, I mean, my. If I, if I, okay, I'll, I'll take your, I'll take your, I'll take your poison chalice. Sure. I think, you know, for whatever reason, this has been a horrendous year for big tech. So a tweet this morning, 120,000 layoffs. Um, compare that to the dot com collapse um, at 2000, and that was 107,000 layoffs. And we're only, we're not even at the end of quarter four. So that's not good. Uh, it's got to have an impact on that kind of bleeding edge investment. But here's the silver lining. I think it might bring a sense of reality. Mm. Uh, and there'll be a focus on stuff, <laughs> hopefully, that actually works rather than the kind of Ponzi scheme that was driving, particularly driving crypto, but also NFTs and whatever. So I think that, you know, if reality bites, that's a good thing because it's not going to go away. None of this is going to go away, but it's got to get focused on real uses rather than f- stupid fanboys with monkey NFTs. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's interesting to see the number of platforms and, uh, and publishers who are sort of too far in now to a project to pull it. So obviously Twitter was kind of pushing its own NFTs. Uh, Reddit's got its own NFT avatars now as well. And you sort of think, well, they're, they're, they can't pull that down. They're too deep in the hole. Elon, Elon Musk can do anything. Oh, God. We, we spoke about him too much last week. Except run a but, company. <laughs> so, Esther, what happened with uh, with CNN? Um, so uh, this is this is one of the few publisher examples I could find that was an update on a project that they'd launched. Because like loads, loads of publishers launched projects last year and um, – they don't tend to publish when it hasn't gone very well. Um, but actually, the, the CNN one did um, hit headlines. So they they did this vault by CNN Marketplace last year that was selling collectible sort of 
uh, moments tied to major news events. Um, they they dropped that last month, um, and it it got quite a lot of people really really angry. There were these users that had spent you know thousands of dollars on exclusive access features coming in the future. It, it really sort of bought into it. Um, and actually, when I was when I was reading through it, a lot of the comments coming out were like, "Well, because you were a publisher, because you were a trusted." organization we bought into this rather than some of the sort of dodgy nft ponzi stuff run by the fanboys because we trusted you as a brand um and it's actually it, it's a bit of a kick in the teeth then that, that the publisher has just gone like yeah no actually we're, we're completely pulling this um although, although the article did note that it lasted 16 times longer than cnn plus <laughs> it's, it's a low bar so simon what what then is the sort of the i suppose the opportunity for publishers now publishers broadcasters basically media companies who are looking to maybe get into crypto while it is this lull no not at all this is this is, <laughs> this is a sign that they should you know be exiting completely and uh that they're really the, it, it really showed that the emperor has no clothes that all these things that were pitched about web 3 that it'll allow you to own your audience that it'll decentralize content distribution um, that it will you, you know uh, allow you to have more direct uh interaction with your audience that really kind of should it, it there really was nothing there and there were mm. most of the things that it claimed to do web 2 was already doing it uh better and easier and uh i i still have not seen any good use cases of you know web 3 that that's practical and scalable for publishers I think one of the things that really came out over the last few years is that there is this general panic around new technologies. You know, everybody was talking about Web3 saying this is the future. Um, there is this general perception that publishers were very, very late to a lot of the kind of classic web stuff, the Web2 stuff. Um, and I, I think there was this sort of paranoia that would they be the really late ones again? So I, I don't know I don't know if there's really any advice for publishers about emerging tech, like, like how do you strike that balance between not being the absolute last one on it and also not going straight for it when there's no, you know, people couldn't even explain what Web3 is. To some extent, but I think that there was a first mover advantage when it came to NFTs for publishers. Because remember, it was sort of last year we were talking about the astronomical sums that people <laughs> were paying for, like the Alice in Wonderland cover. So yeah. there was there was genuinely a sort of one-off uh, opportunity there for them to generate some revenue. I think that the smart money such as there is in, in crypto, is talking about using NFTs as tokens to allow some functionality yeah. down the line. So I was talking to Virtue, their sort of vices agency. They were doing work on behalf of Coke. And they were saying, basically, if if this is going to take off in a big way, it actually has to confer some benefit, whether that be some sort of like member-only access to a site using this token. Because the, to be the Dirt right. did that, so that's, didn't they? Yeah, Dirt. And Dirt's like one of the cool ones. I did one of the only cool Web3 projects I've ever come across. But <laughs> yeah, like what you're talking about is called utility yeah. uh, within the Web3 world. But what you're saying, like gating off access, that's already done by Web2 much easier than having to learn how to buy Ethereum and then, uh, you know, unlock it using a crypto wallet and all that. Like it, it just it's just Web2 with extra steps like you can gate off content. Now you could have member only communities that are based on subscriptions or memberships. Uh, all of this is much more efficient and easier technology to use than uh, your standard Web3 platform. Is that something you think will change? And is that something you think will change in the future? 
No, I mean they, they claim they claim that they're they're always like whenever you press them on this. And I and I was at a creator economy uh, summit or conference earlier this year, and I was talking to some of these people over meals and breaks, and I was kind of pressure pressing them on uh, the lack of functionality. And like the thing is, and I'm not a technologist or a coder, so I can't really speak super technically on this. Uh, but the blockchain, it, it's really cool and how it functions in creating um, ha- creating scarcity of digital assets, which nobody has been able to do, but it's also a really inefficient type of technology. And there, whenever I would press them on some lack of functionality, they, were, they would always be like, oh, well, they're going to build this. They're going to build this. And that's always been the perpetual thing. But like some of the technologists who actually watch this space, they, they've kind of examined these claims that things are being built to allow X, Y, and Z, and they can find no evidence that they're actually developers out there building these functionalities. So I just don't think it's going to be get that much easier. That's true of any technology, right? Any brand new technology um, takes time to be useful. And I think the, pro- the problem was people weren't interested in the technology. They were interested in doubling their money. It's yep. a classic Ponzi yep. scheme. Yep. Yeah. So I think this is a time frame issue. And, you know, I where I, where I disagree with Simon is, is on the time frame. I think it will get better, but I think it could take 10 years. And then that's when you will get that functionality. And it will just be like people, my mom pays you know, sends my daughter her birthday money using digital banking. That's mm. mind-bending for an eight-year-old <laughs> to be doing that. I think you can send gifts around FTs. That would have been cool. <laughs> <clears throat> and I think I, I think that that's just it's exactly what what Simon's saying. That if you've got to figure out how to buy Bitcoin or Ethereum or whatever other token it is to be able to do something that you can already do using your credit card is never going to happen. So it, it, it's an interface issue and a utility issue, issue. And I think it will be fixed, but it'll take a long time. FTX was in the middle of uh, building the uh, building all that cross functionality, and we know how well FTX is doing. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I suppose will the incentive be there to to simplify, to innovate, and to do that if if it already exists in, I suppose, the normal world. And I, I think the other thing that um, became really, really apparent this year is that um, the systems that have come up around regulation and banking and the reason we have so much regulation in these systems in sort of, I'm going to call it real world money, um, have become very, very apparent in that the fact that there is pretty much none in, in crypto. I, I wonder if we'll end up seeing this sort of retreat to sort of quote real real money and regulated <laughs> banking systems well without going off on my anti-capitalist rants <laughs> that happened in banking 10 years ago 12 mm. years ago it's not you know that's about money it's about people it's about what people do ftx is the collapse of ftx is basically just a bank run mm. it's the exact same thing that happened to northern rock in the uk People took people took all the fucking money out, and that yeah, was it. At least with banks, we have the FDIC. At least in the US, I don't yeah, know absolutely. I, yeah, absolutely. I don't know. Long term, I think there will be benefits. I think you know, tokens for subscriptions. Maybe I don't know why you would do that, but if you can get into the you know wallets that will, I hate to bring up micropayments, Esther. I was just about into, to say, yeah, yeah. Well, it's, if you it's get into wallets, conversations around that, yeah. But yeah, if you can get into wallets to support micropayments, that whole conversation starts to be different because there's a lower cost of transaction. It just, that becomes interesting. Well, I, 
if the utility and the interface can be sorted out. Well, you know who's solving this problem is Elon Musk. With his X <laughs> oh, app. fuck. Yeah, Chris, I'm trying app. my hardest here. I'm trying really hard I to appreciate be it. Optimistic. I appreciate it. This right. is the second podcast I've been on in the last week where the, the hosts were like, we need to go as far as we can into this episode without talking about Elon Musk. Yeah. <laughs> this is the second episode that we've done in a week where we did that. Yeah. And we made it 28 minutes and 15 seconds. <laughs> okay. So we should move on because obviously we, we can talk about some of the specific examples that in our media moments at the end of the episode. But for now, we should talk about the metaverse. Uh, I know that, Simon, I don't know if you've listened to the podcast, these two hate the idea. The metaverse is currently, is pretty much just gaming. It's these like little virtual instances. There's no interoperability. There is none of the kind of the promise that ultimately people are sort of basing, predicating all their metaverse experiments on. But there have been some good and fun experiments in there. But at the moment, that's that's really all it is. There's an experiment. We saw ITV early in the year launch The Voice within Roblox. Um, since then, Roblox told me that it wants to make self-serve marketing experiences like that a bigger part of its business. So publishers can transfer some of their experimental budget just across two platforms like that. Um, and in March, Vogue held its Vogue business and Yahoo Metaverse experience on the dedicated mini Metaverse platform Journey. I spoke to Kirsty McGregor, who's the senior European editor at Vogue Business, who's just launched their own Web3 vertical. Um, and she says that what's possible on Metaverse platforms already outstrips audience expectations, particularly when it comes to luxury. But the problem is that that's not necessarily accessible to everybody. Well, what was it Elle? Elle did that thing. Um, oh God, I can't what it was yeah. called. Um, and that got pretty rave reviews, but it was that sort of, it was the experiential aspect of it. Mm going along and seeing this and being part of it. And that's kind of different from real, honest to God, metaverse, plugging yourself in kind of thing. Um, I, you know, I, again, I think that's the point, isn't it? It's just novelty. That's as good as I've got. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think that one of the things that's, again, become quite apparent this year is that actually a lot of the metaverse platforms are really struggling to get users. Um, mm. Even the... Even some of the most popular ones have got sort of you know five hundred thousand users a month, which isn't it's not a lot if you're looking to spend sort of six Nine seven billion. figures on building an experience for it. Um, and that's just that's just sort of bizarre bizarre stuff like the the cost of of space in these metaverse um, applications. And it's like there's just so much money going into it. But every time I read it, you know, there's, there's something about sort of Adidas were building a, a virtual store experience in one of them, and I was like, well, what? What's the drive for somebody to go and like shop for a virtual shoe? I just don't understand. <laughs> See, but I think that again is is potentially this is because I'm I play games a lot. There is the drive for that. People love cosmetics within games, and that's effectively what this is. So, for instance, I did a video tour of uh, Nightland, which has done really really well. And part of that was you can buy you know Nike outfits for use across Roblox because that's a the platform that that was built on. Now, was I destroyed by a bunch of 10-year-olds in some of the minigames? Yes, absolutely. There's nothing I can do about that. But is there something there? I think there is, because it is built on gaming, and gaming has always had some of those cosmetics at the heart of it. This comes back to what we were saying last week, is that at the moment, the the kind of business and living and life side is being put before the gaming experiences in, in a lot of the metaverse case studies and things that are coming up. And it's like, it needs to be a place you go for entertainment before the rest of it follows, not a place that you go to have a virtual meeting. Like that that side of it isn't there yet. And, and I still maintain people want 
people and real life experiences. I think the, the last couple of years has demonstrated that more strongly than ever. I, I think that's where Meta's totally missold what they're trying to do because they kind of went on that meet people rather than play games. Yeah, they went all in on enterprise stuff. You know, when you're in a meeting and no one's sat beside you's got any legs, that's kind of weird. Yeah. <laughs> I think that so like they renamed it Meta. And then their main metaverse, which is called what Horizons or something like yeah, that, yeah. it actually lost users. So you have a you know a hundred billion dollar plus media uh, in terms of revenue company that renames its <laughs> renames itself to saying we're going to go all in on this this new technology, and the core product within that technology actually lost users. Now, what does that say about the metaverse as a whole and its future? Like, I think sometime in the future, depending on how far in the future we're talking about, maybe 20, 30 years, yeah, we will live. In these virtual reality virtual realities uh, that that extend far beyond just what you're seeing from Roblox and and Fortnite right now, uh, but but in terms of Facebook specifically, uh, I think in terms of renaming itself, it really uh, it really extended. It, <laughs> you know, put put the cart before the horse yeah. in terms of uh, in terms of creating a product that uh, you know people actually want to use. I mean, at the rate oh. Facebook are burning through money, they won't be here in 20 years. <laughs> well, it's interesting. I wonder how much of that kind of that rename was predicated on uh, Zuckerberg just being a tech geek and how much of it was them going, holy shit, Apple is destroying our advertising revenue. We need to do a very public transition to something that is is less dependent on something that Apple can just pull away from us. No, well, do you know what so- this is though? Zuckerberg's watched Ready Player One. And he oh, just Christ. wants to build that. that. That's all he wants to build. Yeah. I also think it's like Facebook has gotten so large. It's not cool anymore. It's mm. losing users, but it can't acquire other social media companies because it would run into antitrust uh, regulation. So he's kind of in a box where he can't, he can't, he's pro- nobody, he can't create products that people want to use and he can't acquire products that people are already using. And so he has to move into some kind of new piece of emerging tech that could possibly be worth a trillion dollars 10 years from now. And his big bet was that piece of emerging tech was the metaverse. Yeah, specifically kind of the, the VR aspect of it, which will be part of it, but it's not, you know, how a lot of people are going to interact with that. Just before we move on, I, I will say, I genuinely hope that we are wrong about this because some of the VR, AR experiences that I've seen, we could talk about that as a separate thing. That's not necessarily the metaverse from publishers have been amazing. Do you remember 16 by 9 by The Guardian? I've seen a couple of really, really good... um, but Chris, Chris, that, that was nearly 10 know, years ago. I know, I know. <laughs> this, is this is what I mean. what I mean. This is what I mean. Why hasn't it moved on? But and and FT's like, Hidden Cities was like, what, eight years ago? Yeah, that was that was fun, but that was like Google Cardboard. <laughs> but this is what I mean. Some of the best oh, citizen Google journalism Cardboard, I've seen. I forgot all about Google yeah, Cardboard. Yeah, yeah. Some of the best citizen journalism I've seen over the past years has been delivered through 360 video, which is easily accessible through the Oculus. I would love there to be more of that. Can I... Um, can I raise the tone of this? Because there is actually a piece of technology this year that has come out that I'm, I am actually quite excited about and I think is more beneficial for publishers. And that's AI image generation. Oh, yeah. We should have been talking about that this whole time. That's amazing. Right. I, so so that- I, yeah, that's great. I mean, that is just like you talk about exciting times in tech. 
Like I, I am just still blown away. I guess it'll get old after a while. It'll get less amusing, but uh, you know, seeing some of this stuff and like, I'm currently a subscriber to Getty images, but I'm mm. thinking of letting that subscription lapse and then, and then, you know, subscribing to mid journey or something because every, every publisher needs some kind of image to go along with their articles because it creates thumbnails. It ranks better in SEO and stuff like that. But our number, but we're not necessarily photographers or designers or anything like that. So we, as a shortcut, we, we subscribe to these stock image creators, which everybody has access to the same images. The idea to be able to create your own, like really good, like, you know, image to go along with it or article or whatever that could be abstract, uh, you know, in, in different ways, like that genuinely is exciting. I mean, it, it terrifies me the thought of what it's going to do to illustrators because like whoever runs Axios's illustration department is going to be, you know, out of a job. <laughs> Like every publisher from like the small sort of solo operations right through to some of the huge ones can can use this as a way to create sort of some really quite niche, weird and wonderful stuff. Like, you know, we, we could we could create all sorts of things to go along with with articles that are normally quite difficult to illustrate just from sort of, you know, stock imagery. Yeah. And it, it, Dali, I think, sick. is the most popular one that um that's the most well known example. Um some of the stuff Dali's generated has been absolutely incredible. I think one of the, mm. one of them actually won like a, an art award. Yeah, that was yeah. controversial, and it was an incredible piece of art. Like it deserved yeah. a win. This, so there's a couple of things that we we should probably talk about here. One is um, I'm, I'm part of the Stable Diffusion subreddit, which is made up of people who are using Stable Diffusion to generate AI art, and it is mostly I would say 50 percent of the posts are them taking the piss out of traditional illustrators <laughs> for, for getting up in arms about this. Yeah, like Simon said, like Esther alluded to there, I'm sick to death of using Pixbay Unsplash to find Scrabble like Scrabble types yeah. arranged to say like yeah. optimism. Yeah. Or like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Going to video recently as well, which is absolutely fascinating. Some of it is just That scares unreal. me. That scares me a bit more. <laughs> um, well, is, the, is, the, is, is it the potential for disinformation around the videos that scares you? Yeah, I think so. There's some of the, I think I've probably just seen more frightening examples of video. The, the Dali and a lot of the um, more well-known um, artwork generators have got quite a lot of restrictions. So you need, you can't say, um, you can't use sort of real faces and say, show, you know, do me an image of Biden winning, um, you know, the next election because it, it sort of distorts the faces because it, it's almost got the safeguards against trying to be used for that sort of thing. Um, the video ones I've seen have, have, have not had quite, quite such yeah, safeguards. So I've seen some quite frightening yeah Sam, <laughs> i don't face. think mid journey has those restrictions does it because i've seen some uh, some of exactly what i was talking about there kind of that real people in in different scenarios yeah i haven't looked into the specifics so i don't know mm. yeah um but I, th- I mean there's there's all sorts of things around that especially when it comes to publishers around um like commercial and copyright cases i think so dali i know own the open ai owns the generations but it does actually allow um publishers to sell the rights to the images at the moment but I mean, that's that again. That just feels like a whole new area that we actually probably need a couple of court cases to go through in order to set any kind of precedent. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, I think issue. I think at least in the US, it's it's still open question whether AI art can be um, copywritten. There was a recent case where it indicated that it could, but there were previous cases where it wasn't able to be. You know, um, th- there weren't I- any IP rights associated with it, so it's definitely not not. Uh, there's not a lot of precedent yet. My one issue with these is that you can tell what's been generated by AI. You can tell a mile away. Yeah. 
Yeah, I'm you can't. Sure. You absolutely can. This, and the, I think eventually that's going to get really old unless it changes. <laughs> Why do you say that? Because it's just every publication will look the same. Oh, what? No, every so, publication yeah. is using AI to generate their images. Yeah, but like you can tell the AI to do it in different styles. Like you can like you can even name the name of like a famous artist yeah. and say in the style of Picasso or like stuff like that. Like there's just so much there is a lot of diversity and variety in terms of the images. If you, the if you look closely creating. at the edges, you can tell. <laughs> and also, yeah. right, come on, we're all using the same the stock pixels. image. Yeah. We're all using the same I, stock I, images. I absolutely moment. agree with that. I just um, think there's got to be some movement in it or it's it will get old. The the one thing that I think is funny is at the moment a lot of them aren't very good at hands at all. So like you'll see some really really fucked up hands, and that's yeah. how you know that it's like yeah. Hands are hard though. Hands, hands are really hard. Hands. hands, yeah, yeah. That's like that scene from iRobot where Will Smith's giving the robot shit for not being able to do a masterpiece. <laughs> and the robot says, "Well, have you ever painted a masterpiece?" Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, before we get into Will Smith's filmography, we should probably move on to some of our key media moments, and then we can come back for a special Will Smith episode because Bad Boys for Life is actually pretty good. Um, and so, my key media moment—we t- we spoke about NFTs earlier, but my—I was really interested. A, I was interested to find out that Second Life still has its own dedicated in-universe newspaper. <laughs> that is fascinating to me, the Second Life Inquirer, but. Uh, the Web3 moment that stuck out to me was when the Associated Press tried to sell a photo of a migrant boat. Do you remember this? Uh, as an NFT. This was back in February. And the backlash was predictably and correctly extremely negative. Coverage was saying, you know, they were profiting from suffering. But it speaks to this idea that you have to be a lot more careful when you're introducing new paid-for products to your audience around this kind of stuff. Because that was obviously... It, it, I think the speculation was that that had not passed enough eyes on the way to the marketplace. You know, even things like we were talking about CNN earlier, that was, yeah, that was where you could buy NFTs off particular stories. And I mean, that, that's exactly the same thing. I think it's just not quite as Emotive. in your face as yeah. that that as example. Reason. And there, I mean, the, you know, South China Morning Post has sold, has sort of made millions and millions of pounds selling its selling NFTs of some of its archive stuff, and it's. I don't think they're there distinguishing between this is a story of human suffering and this isn't. It's yeah. yeah if, if you're a news publisher in this space, what there are very few stories you can sell that aren't in some way about human suffering. That's that's sort of the news business. Yeah, if you'd sold like an NFT of the Hackney Gazette front page where they named Jack the Ripper, would that be profiting from human suffering in the same way, or was it kind of that recency effect? Yeah, I, I think the um, the the photos like selling the photos in bad taste, but I, I don't know how you can apply that fairly across everybody. Peter, why did you shake your head? <laughs> what, wasn't Jack the Ripper in White Chapel? Yeah, but it was. It, you know, the news was like all around the country, right? It wasn't just <laughs> White Chapel thing. <laughs> anyway, Simon, I've I've chosen Jack the Ripper as my medium of twenty twenty two. What what would be your key, sort of key media moment? Oh, well, I mean, I guess like one of the biggest things was uh, Substack launching its recommendations tool. Um, you know, there was always the, the, the knock against Substack was that it's, it, this was the claim by a lot of its, its critics was it was just yet another newsletter sending tool. And yet it took 10% of all um, payments, um, uh, you know, any kind of revenue that you were generating on the platform, it, ticked, it took 10%. And everybody was like, well, why? would I give it 10% when I can just, as soon as I start seeing some success, migrate my audience over to another platform like Ghost or MailChimp where I could, I don't have to pay that large of 
percentage, um, Substack launched something called Recommendations, which basically introduced network effects into the Substack ecosystem, helped help the, their creators start building an audience in the same way that you can build an audience on like Facebook or YouTube, not through an algorithm, but basically kind of like a update to the old fashioned blog role. Um, and that has, you know, definitely accelerated the growth of a lot of newsletters and has given you given them a lot more justification to stay on the platform uh, and not migrate off of it. So that was definitely, you know, a big, big move for Substack and the creator economy. This is exactly what I mean. Is it's not the shiny, exciting sort of Web3 crypto metaverse things <laughs> that have, have been good this year. It's, it's little changes like that, that have made a big difference. Mm. Yeah, and they're definitely doing some new things in terms of blending old school newsletters and the and the idea that you should own your audience, um, and but also um, you know introducing network effects which are usually associated with lock in like you know closed walled platforms like Facebook. So they've been doing a good good job of riding that balance between those two different worlds, and they can still claim to be a creator first platform that allows you to own your audience very nice well peter you want to talk about some uh, artificial intelligence you want to talk about irobot i can just i can feel it what was the robot's name sonny sonny <laughs> i want sonny to come and work with me <laughs> um i i can be i think i'm genuinely optimistic about the the way things are developing in ai not necessarily technology but the way people are talking about it I think the conversation's moved on, even although Esther says all the illustrators are going to have to go and find new jobs. <laughs> I think the conversation's moved on from AI will take your job and you'll be replaced by a robot. And I think it's much more about here's how AI can help you do your job, which is much, much more interesting. Troy Young uh, on his Algorithms versus People newsletter just put a list of 50 AI things that are, you know, that he found interesting. Covers creative tools that we've already talked about, but he also talks about automated marketing, like writing assistants, um, personal assistants, you know, things that are going to make a difference to your your own kind of output and productivity and <laughs> just a bunch of cool toys, which are really good. Um, <laughs> So I think, you know, I think as, as well as it getting more practical, it's also getting more, it's getting louder. People are writing about it more often, talking about it more often and, and talking about the real practical applications. I think part of that, I don't know if you've seen the LSE's journalism AI project, which has got all sorts of resources and stuff on there about how newsrooms are using AI practically. They bring in fellows every so often and they do real-world projects. It's just very cool. It reminded me a lot of the membership puzzle project in terms of, okay, how are we going to do this and share that shared learning from, mm. from these projects. I think that practicality around AI is really interesting. This is the first time, in, like our entire lives, we've heard about the future of AI and we've seen these futuristic movies and stuff like that. I don't know if you feel the same way, but it was only within the last year where I was like, wow, some of this stuff is actually starting to feel kind of futuristic. Like, it, like I feel like there's been a great leap forward in AI and we're and now we're just kind of shocked, like, oh, wow, maybe this future actually is coming sooner rather than later. I, I completely agree with that. In fact, I was just about to say for the past couple of years, we've seen you know publishers say, oh, this article was written by a robot, can you tell? Yeah. And then it's this year in particular where we've seen people almost not do that as a bit of novelty, but actually yeah. say, look, this is actually enhancing 
this is how it's enhancing the reporting and this is why we can actually get some of the analysis out because the robot is doing part of the work. Go on, Peter. What's really funny about that is that articles written by AI, Google is slamming them for SEO. They're, they're losing like 70% of their traffic because Google's identified it as an AI written article. Neil Patel did a, a piece on this. So that that's like the snake eating its tail. Google's that's gone out sick. there and what was the, the developer said AI was going to eat the world or whatever it was he said <laughs> he well was there was a google, google developer who yeah. thought that that uh, oh, god, ai god. had the ai had re- reached sentence basically. <laughs> yeah. a chance. so we're now in a position where the journalists are almost the filter between the ai and the algorithm <laughs> oh what a wonderful world <laughs> well esther you've got a a slightly more far-flung example for your media moment oh yeah um i'm gonna try and say this straight um so I was reading up some examples of publishers that were using uh, the metaverse. And um, there's actually an example of an, a niche B2B magazine in the UK that's done it. Um, so yeah, I was reading this in publishing magazine. Um, they're a Haymarket uh, title at Management Today. Um, so they, they sort of partnered up with an agency who owned some virtual real estate. Yeah. They, 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 they own some sort of pixels in this uh, Decentraland space, um, and they sort of yeah they work with them to build a virtual cover of the Management Today front cover, which is apparently the virtual equivalent of twelve meters high. I, I don't know how that translates. Um, and their their magazine is normally paywalled, but they made the pay they made the magazine accessible to people who came through the link. Um, <laughs> the idea I thought was kind of cool because their their logic was well th- this is a special episode this is a special issue dedicated to the metaverse, so we kind of need to really dip our toes into it in order to really understand it and to give that reporting credibility. But they the the results were just really, really vague. And then it actually transpired that they can't they couldn't prove any of the increase in views to their magazine came from the metaverse. Mm. Um, and they sort of the the outcome of it was basically that it's quite difficult to measure this kind of data in the metaverse. And for me that's that's one of the key things that needs to be in place before publishers start going into the thing is how are you going to measure ROI? How are you going to measure success? Well, no one's ever can't... sorted it for podcasting, so that's <laughs> doing okay. Well, I, sh- yeah. I was just about to say, it took until this year for the IAB UK to introduce audio and gaming into its gold standard. And that's like, so God knows how long this will take. But what it is, is a good, like you said, it's novelty. This is a good example of, oh, look, we're getting ahead of the curve. We're showing that we know what we're writing about. So to that end, I think we should announce that we're actually going to be recording the next episode of Media Voices within the metaverse. So we'll <laughs> we'll share those links. Everyone can come and see. But so you buy yeah, a on. place next to Snoop Dogg. Yeah. Can you walk over and say hello? You can borrow some sugar from him yeah. if he's there. If he's online. Oh. Uh-huh. He, oh, he's rethinking it. That's interesting. <laughs> Well, well, we'll have to come back to this next year. I would I would love to have seen the conversation move on next year, but I think, as we've all said, this might be the year that we that a sense of realism has come to Web3. So anything that we talk about next year might be slightly more structured, might be slightly more regulated, might be slightly more sensible <laughs> in a couple of ways. But, Maybe we'll uh, have to rename this chapter and go from calling it emerging tech to just like old and boring tech. Old and boring tech, yeah, that'd be good. We'll be on Web5 by then. So, Simon, thank you so much for coming on and having the chat. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. If if the users users, oh my god, I'm into the matrix. <laughs> if the listeners want to find you um, and sort of seek out your insight, where where can they do that? 
I think you should just Google my name, Simon Owens. Uh, if you want, you can say you can Google Simon Owens newsletter and you will get to all the different, you'll come to my website and my newsletter and all the other stuff as well. Uh, thanks again to Membership and Subscription Suite Pool for sponsoring this season of the Media Voices podcast and our upcoming Media Moments 2022 report. Um, if you'd like to learn more about topics like optimising subscription conversion rates, retention strategies and more, they've got a bunch of helpful resources at blog.pool.tech. That's triple O in pool. And don't forget, you can pre-register to download that Media Moments 2022 report by going to voices.media forward slash MM22. But thank you again to Simon. And do come back next week when we're going to be doing another deep dive into one of the topics from our upcoming report. It's our Uh, last one next week. Is it? Jesus. Yeah. Uh, But for now, thank you so much for listening and goodbye.